turn to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read Romans 3, 1 to 20, but we're going to focus our attention on Romans 3, 1 to 8. And the title of the sermon this morning is The Blame Game. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one of us were liars, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin." This is the Word of the Lord. <coughs> As we look at Paul's argument, starting in Romans 1.18 and continued through uh, to the section we're looking at, Romans chapter 3, 1-8. For many of you, if not most of you, the, uh, the first three chapters in Romans is very familiar material. What is, what is Paul's goal? In Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.8, what's, what's he trying to accomplish with his writing? He's sharing his gospel. Well, 
I like to watch uh, detective shows, and he reminds me of a, a detective uh, in an interview room. A detective calls in a suspect, and he sets them down at the interview table, and then he begins to lay out the evidence against the suspect, the DNA evidence, the fingerprint evidence, the video recording uh, that, that captured the, the person's crime, lays out all the evidence. And, and this is what Paul has been doing. He does it to the Gentiles. And look at uh, how convincing the evidence actually is. In verse 20 of Romans chapter 1, uh, or verse 19, no, no, verse 20. He says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. All human beings can see from creation that there is a God. There is no excuse for denying God. The evidence has been mounted and is clear, and you can't even speak against it. He goes on and he brings charges against the Jews starting in chapter 2. The evidence again is undeniable to the point that uh, although the Jews are, because of their pride, blinded to their own faults, the Gentile world mocks them because of their hypocrisy. As Paul says in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You claim to be keepers of the law, but the Gentiles, they know, they see right through you. They know you are full of hypocrisy. So, <clears throat> with a detective bringing a criminal into an, uh, a suspect into an interrogation room, laying out all of the evidence. What do they want? What are they seeking? A confession, right? That's what Paul is seeking. He's saying, look, you as human beings, you need to come clean before God. You need to own your guilt before the righteous judge of the heavens and the earth. Paul wants a confession. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles to come clean to take ownership of their unrighteousness. And this is absolutely necessary to the gospel of salvation. Jesus says basically this in Luke chapter 5. He is uh, attending a feast with a group of notorious sinners. And the Pharisees, the, the religious elites, they start to talk and chatter. Man, Jesus, look at, you know, He claims to be a prophet, but look, He's, he's with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the, the people that the culture, the world in, in, uh, in the Middle East at that time, they knew, oh, these people were bad. You don't associate with sinners like this. They come up and, and they ask Jesus, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Listen carefully to Jesus' response. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
I have not come to call right the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to confession of their sins, to owning their guilt and their shame, and being humbled before the cross of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, uh, who was a bishop in the Church of England in Liverpool in the 1800s. I would strongly encourage you to read as much of his writing as you can get your hands on. But in his commentary on Luke 5, he says this, "...those only can receive benefit from Christ who will confess that they are ruined, bankrupt, hopeless, miserable sinners. Paul wants to get us to this point. He wants to convict us of our sin so that we can come empty-handed to God, only clinging to Jesus Christ in the Gospel. We're going to look at two things in this text. First, the privileges of the covenant. And then the second thing, pointing the finger at God. The privileges of the covenant and pointing the finger at God. Paul has been attacking the Jews in chapter 2. Uh, the Jews thought that they were, they were right with God. They had a spiritual pride, a sense of self-righteousness. They pursued uh, the law in a way that they thought if they, if they kept it, they could gain God's favor. Paul strongly attacks their trust in their status. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 28. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Just because you can trace your blood lineage back to Abraham, that doesn't make you right in the sight of God. Just because you've been circumcised, that doesn't guarantee that you are right or that you will escape the wrath of God on the day of of judgment. Association by blood or by sacramental sign like circumcision, um, doesn't, those associations with Abraham don't free the Jew from the guilt of their own personal sin. God doesn't look at their birth certificate on judgment day. He looks at their hearts. And what Paul has been arguing for is that sin is the great equalizer. Yes, you know, the Jews, they, they see themselves as morally superior to the, the Greeks who are practicing idolatry and all forms of uh, sexual degeneracy, homosexuality, and lesbian behavior. And the Jews are like, ooh, man, we're, we're, we're way away from that. But Paul hammers them for the sins of their hearts. Sin is the great Equalizer. It condemns the Gentiles and the Jews. There's no special treatment before God's judgment seat for 
the Israelites. Now, Paul anticipates an objection. Chapter 3, verse 1. All right, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what is the value in circumcision? So, Paul, being a Jew and having the law doesn't protect us from divine judgment. It doesn't secure for us the favor of God. Then really, what's the point? Why be a Jew? Why, why subject ourselves to the moral law? Why subject ourselves to uh, all of the sacrifices that are offered and all of the worship services that we have to go to and all of the cleansing laws and we can't eat this and we can't eat that? I mean, why do we, why put ourselves through it? What's the, what's the point, Paul? If it doesn't secure our place in heaven. This is an extreme reaction. It's either all or nothing. And we see these extreme reactions in a lot of theological error. We've got to be very careful that we don't move on the poles of the extremes. You think, for an instance, of the identity of Jesus. <clears throat> Throughout the history of the Christian church, there's been extreme positions. Some who argue rigorously for Jesus' humanity. Jesus is a man. Jesus is only a man. And then the pendulum swings to the other extreme. No, no, no. Don't you know what Jesus has done? Look at the miracles He's performed. He can't just be a man. He is God. He is only God. And both extremes are heretical errors. Or maybe another one. God is sovereign. We can, it doesn't matter what we do. God has already determined. He's predetermined everything that takes place. No, 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 no. To the hyper-Calvinist, the Arminian says, no, we are responsible. It's, it's up to us. God gives everybody the same chance and doesn't interfere whatsoever. But both extremes are erroneous. They don't hit the mark of biblical revelation. Often the Bible doesn't give us an either or. The Bible truth lies somewhere in between. So we can say with Paul, circumcision does not save your soul. And the response is, well, let's not worry about circumcision then. No, no, no. Paul says, no. But circumcision does have value. Being a Jew has value. Being associated with the community of God's people matters. Although it's not our source of hope and comfort. So what is the benefit of being a Jew? Paul says in verse 2, there is much benefit. Yes, it doesn't guarantee regeneration. Uh, we, Paul affirms that. But there are benefits. There are reasons why God commanded the eight-year-old boys in Israel to be circumcised. He wasn't guaranteeing that through that outward sign their hearts were circumcised. But nonetheless, he commanded it, and he had purpose. Much in every way, the Jews 
are in a special community that best nurtures, cultivates, and promotes faith. Think of, uh, of the Jew, uh, or think of a, uh, say you're planting a flower. You, you take a seed, and you put it in a, a little pot, and you place it in a greenhouse. Why do you do that? Well, the greenhouse provides a, an environment, a context, that gives that seed the best chance at growth and survival, survival and productivity, right? You give it the best chance by placing it in that greenhouse. Is there advantage for the plant that is in that pot and in the greenhouse and has the tender care of the person working in the greenhouse who puts water in it and protects it from diseases and bugs? Is there advantage to that seed compared to the one that just falls off on the medium of a roadway? Which, which seed do we expect to have more opportunity to grow? The one in the greenhouse. The same is true for the Jew. They, they're in a special environment where they are bolstered and supported and nurtured with all of these benefits and blessings that don't guarantee their salvation, but surely enhance the probabilities. Verse 2 much in every way there's benefits. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. They have the word of life. The word that when it's spoken and accompanied by the Holy Spirit, it is life-giving. They have that word. God gives the Jews special revelation about Himself, about the world, about morality about salvation. That's why Paul in that psalm that we read earlier says about the Scriptures that they are more to be desired than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. And Turn to Romans 9. Paul's taking on the same Argument with a slightly different aim in Romans 9. But he speaks some more about the privileges of, of being a Jew. In 9.4 he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. So these are the, the, the benefits that Paul sees in being a Jew. He says, no, a Jew doesn't get the benefit of going to the judgment throne and getting special treatment on the day of God's judgment. They don't get that benefit, but they do get the benefit of the oracles of God, the covenants, the promises, the hope of the Messiah. They get those things. Now, we, we are in a church where we take a high view of 
covenant children. We baptize our, our babies at a very young age before they can make a profession of faith and own that for themselves. And part of the reason we do that is the argument Paul is making here. We believe that this, placing them in the context of the church, gives them some benefits. Is there a benefit in being a baptized infant in a church? Paul would say, much in every way. Along the same lines, he's saying, no, it's not the benefit that, they, that we're guaranteeing their regeneration. No, it's not at that level. But they get the means of grace. They get the support of discipline. They get the sacraments. They get faithful and regular preaching of God's Word. There are benefits and blessings that must not be despised. So we, that's part of the reason why we baptize our children. We strongly and clearly and unequivocally confess that the application of the sign of baptism does not in and of itself save our children. It doesn't. There's no guarantee just because you've been baptized as an infant that you're going to make profession of faith when you turn 12, 13, 14, whatever. We object to any theology of baptismal regeneration. However, we see God commanding us to place our little ones in the nurturing environment of the church. It's not an option in our minds. It's not debatable in our minds. We see great advantage to our little ones being baptized. First and foremost, we believe that God owns our children. He owns them. They're His. And He commands us to place them under the care of the covenant community. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And He says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish My covenant between Me and you, because Abraham, you, you, you are a man of faith. I'm going to make it between me and you, Abraham. But Abraham, I'm also including your offspring. I'm including them not into the, uh, the, the um, predestined, determined will of mine, but into the covenant community. They are part of Israel. Between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Not a promise of regeneration, but a promise that they will share in the revelation, the giving of the law, the promise to Messiah, the hope of the Messiah, instruction in right worship. Children of believers are recipients of these privileges. It's very interesting what Peter says in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. 
in Acts 2.37, speaking to a Jewish audience who would have very much understood the promise to Abraham that I just read. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children. Now how do you think a Jewish parent is going to understand that? The same way that Abraham understood it. And it's to strip exegetically that text and to twist it to think it means anything else. The Jew would have thought he's reiterating the Abrahamic promise in the New Covenant. Now, I want you to look at something here. I want you to turn to Ephesians. I want you to get inside the covenantal mindset of the Apostle Paul. Okay, what does he write in Ephesians 1? He's telling us who he is writing this letter to. And he says, Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. When he says the saints, he means the church, the covenant people of God. And it's interesting. He's writing to the church, and in chapter 6, verse 1, he very clearly includes children of believers as part of the saints. Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So Paul, when he looks out at the congregation, he acknowledges that part of the community of the saints are believers and their children. What advantage is there in being a Jew that doesn't save you, doesn't guarantee regeneration, but there is much advantage in every way? Paul then turns his attention to the blame game played by the Jews who he's writing to. And this brings us to our second point, pointing the finger at God. Paul writes in verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, if our sin serves to show the righteousness of God, our sin makes God look better, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Most of us, that's probably an understatement, all of us, we hate accusations and judgments that are made against us. We do everything possible to avoid 
guilt. We devise clever schemes to explain away our culpability for certain things that we have done. And, and uh, we instinctively protect ourselves from charges of wrongdoing, and we have learned to master the art from a very young age. I've learned this as a parent. I was deceived of it and blinded by my own expertise in that art as a child, but I'm seeing it as a parent. It is remarkable. We must have ghosts in my house because I'll come uh, downstairs and see this mess on the table. A bowl of cereal bowl left out and cereal all over the floor. All right, kids, who, uh, who left the mess on the kitchen table? I don't know. Wasn't, wasn't me. I don't know. Hmm? Maybe it was Evan. I don't know. Well, that was Megan for sure. No, it wasn't me. No, nobody takes the blame. Have you experienced that? I'm sure some of you have. Uh, it's hardwired into us to protect ourselves. And we're going to see that there's a long standing history of this in the Bible, too. But I remind you of what I mentioned to you last week about Jeremiah's analysis of the heart. Jeremiah 17.9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul knows, hey, I'm trying to get a confession out of these guys, but they're going to deny it. They're going to point the finger at everything but right there. And until they start pointing the finger at themselves, Christ will never matter to them. They need to see the need. There's a, a biblical history of blame shifting and concealing guilt, and it starts right with the first sinners, Adam and Eve. They were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did it, they would surely die. Uh, God confronts Adam. He sees Adam's not acting right in the garden. I think I know what's going on. So God confronts Adam and says directly, Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And listen to his response. It's so much like what Paul's dealing with here. The man said, Adam said, the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman you gave me. Yes, the woman you gave me, she did it. It's your fault, God. You see what he's doing? It's your fault, God. You gave me that woman. I didn't want her. I was asleep when all that stuff took place. It's your fault. You gave her to me. She enticed me. It's your fault. And husbands have been great at using that line throughout their marriages. It's, it's gross injustice and highly inflammable to God that we take His mercy and turn it against Him. And blame Him for our sins. Israel in the wilderness also exhibits this. They, um, you remember they go out and they send their spies into the land and they're like, oh my goodness, these, these foreigners are big guys. They're giants and they have fortified cities. We're not going up. No sir, no re, no way, no, not us. No, we're not. And God says, okay, uh, I'm going to send you out into the wilderness. And the wilderness is hard, and they, they lack the food that they want. They have to eat manna, and they don't have water. So what do they do? Whose fault are they? Why are they in the wilderness? Because of their lack of faith. But what do they do? 
They start to blame God. Psalm 106, 24 captures this. They despised the pleasant land. They had no faith in His promise. They murmured in their hearts and did not obey the voice of God. God, You've brought us out here just to kill us. They're saying, God, You made a covenant with us and You're not holding up to Your end of the bargain. And that's what's being said here. But the problem was their lack of faith. And, and as we, when we hit Romans 11, we see that again. Why, why are the Israelites broken out of the covenant? It's their lack of faith. Why could our, our covenant children potentially lose salvation? Because of their lack of faith. Baptism didn't guarantee them anything. They have to respond to the gospel with faith. So the Jews are raising the same objections. Uh, we've already read some of those. Look at verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? It's absurd. These arguments presented by the Jews are perverse, delusional, and blatantly false. We're told in verses 3 and 5 that it is because of their unfaithfulness and their unrighteousness that they stand under the righteous judgment of God. And what Paul wants is for them to own their guilt like he did. He, he often refers to himself as the chief of sinners. It's crucial to the gospel that we acknowledge and own our guilt before God, that we stop playing the blame game, that we confess unreservedly that we are in the wrong and God is in the right. I want to close by going back to that statement I read from Ryle. We as Christians need to live in a state of humility and repentance. Always humble, always repentant, always dependent on Christ alone. Ryle says, I'll reread and then add a little bit. He says, Those only can benefit from Christ who will confess that they are ruined, bankrupt, hopeless, miserable sinners, that we can contribute nothing. And then he asked the pointed question, are we sensible of our own wickedness and sinfulness? Do we feel that we, that we are unworthy of anything but wrath and condemnation, save in the mercy of Christ and Christ alone? Let us pray. Father, we ask that You would humble our hearts, that You would pin us down, that You would overwhelm us with the evidence against us, and that we would live our lives in repentance, confession, and confession of Christ's glory and saving work. Oh Lord, Make our hearts receptive to the gospel. Amen.